Dave Shorman is the chief executive officer. <laughs> You're really giving me a high, <laughs> high profile. Oh, the uh, organizer. What, what do you like to call uh, yourself? How about the guy who started it all out? The founder. <laughs> the founder. The founder of Bloomsday Montreal. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Why, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. This is the literary tourist category that uh, you're falling into, just so you know. And mm -hmm. literary tourism, of course, as the name implies, involves people who love books and literature traveling to places that have significance for them as book lovers. Yeah. And uh, in particular, in the case of Bloomsday, lovers of Ulysses. Yeah, and Joyce, but yes, specifically Ulysses, and more generally Joyce and his works, and Irish literary people too, for that matter. Right, so perhaps you could just tell us a bit about the novel itself, and when people started celebrating Bloomsday, and where. Yeah, well, it's, it was published first on, on, in fact, which is the typical James Joyce move, on his birthday. He loved his birthday, the second of February 1882 he was born and 40 years later on the 2nd of February 1922 they published the book in Paris in English I think there was a thousand copies made or something Sylvia Beach did Sylvia right? Beach yeah. and a number of other people published it and you know it had a limited success in the sense that you know not a lot of people were reading it at the time it was very avant-garde it's a book with 18 different chapters, or sometimes called episodes, and it's uh, not an easy book to read. Was it uh, perceived by the authorities as being pornographic? Uh, it's interesting, because at the beginning, no. Not in Paris, and I think that's, uh, as I was mentioning just briefly before, that might have been actually a smart idea, not to publish it in any other country. Because any English-speaking country would immediately start to talk about, oh, the Esserset passages, which are, you know, they're just too much for us to take. Like masturbation. Oh, them, oh, yeah, the whole thing. Well, the biggest chapter, which is chapter, I think, 11 or 9, is a Nausicaa, in which you skip these masturbation scenes and you get all kinds of talk about nasty uh, biological, shall we say, questions. But you get that right off the bat, the bat when you first meet Bloom uh, in Chapter 4, which is called Calypso. So he's going to the bathrooms. Then he goes to the, uh, you know, he does ev everything that a human being does Functions. 24 hours a day. Yeah. Normal. Which is normal, yeah. actually. Almost no author would talk about Joyce put it right out there. And of course, the final chapter, which is called Penelope, which he gives to Molly Bloom, his wife, is really filled with a lot of pretty scatological stuff. Pretty hard to take. The F word is used. She uses, a, a, she talks all about the sex she's had that day and all that kind of stuff. But well, Dave, Dave, it's beautiful. To me, one of the most beautiful parts is actually the last two or three pages where she's talking about meeting Bloom, they're on House Head, and it's just, well, it's poetry. Yeah. And that's the other side of it. There's a lot of beautiful, beautiful words, beautiful poetry in this book. There are parts that are much more difficult to get through. What people often miss is the humor. There's a lot of humor in Joyce. Actually, I find more 
as he moved up from Dubliners, and the next big one was Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, yeah. and then Ulysses, and finally Finnegan's Wake, you get more and more comedic passages. And if you read it too seriously, I think you're making a mistake. Let's have uh, a yeah. scholar weigh in on this. This is Richard Elman. His oh, yeah, Elman, his major first biography. Yeah, yeah wonderful right. biography. Yeah. Ulysses revolts against history as hatred and violence and speaks in its most intense moments of their opposition. It does so with the keenest sense of how love can degenerate into dreamy creaminess or into brutishness, can claim to be all soul or all body, when only in the union of both can it truly exist. Like other comedies, Ulysses ends on a note of reconciliation. Exactly. You think there's, there's this constant tension throughout the whole book as Blue knows there's going to be this meeting, this sort of encounter with his wife at four o'clock that afternoon of June the 16th, 1904. With their lover, right? <coughs> with the Blaise. lover. Blaze is boiling. Yeah. And so there's a lot of angst. And yet in the siren's a chapter where he is himself thinking about that because it's about to happen. Yeah. And then later on in the bar, where well, Leopold he knows Bloom it's, is. Yes, yeah. where Leopold Bloom is. He's thinking about this, but he's also thinking about how she's a very lovely lady. He loved her. And then you get that reiterated by his wife, Molly, yeah. at the very last. Yes, she had an encounter with Blazes Boylan and he was a great lover in a sense. And yet, you know, you get this doubt. You know, good old Leopold isn't as bad as as she might think or other people might think. And the very ending of it, the yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. Well, what else could you say? If, if you're going to make a conclusion about this book, and which is pretty hard to do maybe, is that eh, they're going to get together. If you wrote a sequel, which would be crazy to do, but they're not going to disappear. No, they're going to stay together. Exactly. I, yeah. I would suggest yeah. that that happens. I guess he's going to forgive her or just let, what, her, let what, it be. Or, or just say, as he say, as she says, and he says, actually, eh, it happens, so what, big deal, you can yeah. move on from it. And I think that's what's going to happen. But okay. who cares, it's the way he says it. It's the way Joyce puts those words in her mouth or in her head at that end, which you think, it's, it's, it ends on a real up. It's not like... Uh, Oh, everything's going to fall apart. Nothing's going to happen. I'm going to never see this guy again. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. Not in Ulysses. Yeah. So his conquering hero, Ulysses, comes home to the island of Ithaca. Of course, there is, of course, in the background, this whole uh, Homeric parallel. With yeah, the, the kind Odyssey. of the skeleton of the Odyssey. Exactly. Yeah. But, but in the end, he comes home. Penelope, remember, Penelope in the Odyssey resists her she lovers. She is faithful. Faithful, presumably totally faithful. So there's a difference. For, for decades. For decades, for like 100, 10, at 20 least years. 10 years or yeah. more. 10 and to 20 comes, years. Yeah. And, but then when Ulysses comes back, Odysseus comes back, he realizes that she has been faithful and everything comes back. And he's up. been screwing his brains out, of course. Exactly. That's right. So So I think... It's, a, it's interesting, the parallels. And it's, it's really a work of genius, and that's why when people say it's one of the great novels of the last hundred years, yeah, 
I'm not going to argue with that. There's other great novels. There's all kinds of other stuff, which is wonderful. Faulkner, to me, and many, many other people are right up there in terms of enormously important and really great, great stuff. But yeah. I'll tell you, Virginia Woolf comes to mind because I think she's one of the great... Uh, and I think she was actually jealous. She didn't like him too much. She, didn't she called like him, him a pimply uh, yeah, something or other. But you know what? Why? I think it's because there was a certain jealousy. Yeah. He, he wrote and published it in 1922. And it was at that point in her head, she was writing something similar. And he comes out before she does. <laughs> but you know what? She does this stuff brilliantly. She does the consciousness stuff yeah. In a different, and in many ways, a very, really a strong, attractive way. So yeah. it doesn't take away from what she did. No. At all. Okay, so anyway. let's get to uh, the, the actual uh, action of the, the novel takes place in one day, yeah. June the 16th, 1904. That's right, yeah. Uh, and it follows Leopold Bloom's day, sort of moving around Dublin, correct? Yeah, yeah. for about 8 a.m., and he actually, oddly enough, he calls you in suspense. You don't even hear about Bloom for 65 pages. And then, after the third, three full episodes about Stephen Dedalus and other people, suddenly, on the fourth, you see good old Leopold, the nice, common, ordinary guy, walking around his kitchen, making breakfast for him and his wife, who's upstairs still in bed. And this goes on till about 2 a.m., Eventually, he comes back home, and it's about 2, 2.30 in the, the morning. The, sorry, the, the, what are you talking about? The novel? Yeah, in the novel. goes from 8 a.m. Yeah, it goes from about 8 a.m. the 2 a.m. Yeah, to about 2 a.m. the next morning. It's actually into the 17th of uh, June. But yeah. uh, Which is what happens on Bloomsday, I'm sure. Uh, probably, I would <laughs> think so, yes. So yeah. it's, well, you it's, would know. It's become, for some people, especially in Dublin, they, they treat as, as if it was real. If it wasn't fictional, that all these places exist, and I, I keep reminding people, Sweeney's Pharmacy does exist, I know, in downtown Dublin. But guess what? Why is it so famous now? Not because it's a pharmacy. It's because Mr. Joyce wrote about Leopold going in and buying his lemon soap there in the first, fourth or fifth chapter. And so people go on and on about saving Sweeney's Pharmacy, which is a great idea. Apparently it's ready to close down. But... You know what? Remember, it is a work of fiction, which we're almost thinking as being real. I mean, his house, 7 Eccles Street, it doesn't exist yeah. because they destroyed it for some hospital or something. But they even have the door for it, for, for God's sake, recovered, and it's in the James Joyce Center in Dublin. It's well, the almost Irish, a life of itself, that's yeah, what I mean. Yeah, really and the does. Irish do really cherish the uh, relics. Of literature, I know that they spent a lot of money on uh, Yeats's oh, yeah. desk, I think, at the oh, oh, yeah. National Library. Yeah. But still, yeah. so it took until 1954. Uh, yeah, around 1950. Obviously, the book had been published. There was a lot of things that went on with it. There was a case that it was pornographic. It was that was in the USA, so it was banned in the USA. It was yeah. banned in Canada, for that matter. Yeah. And a number of people helped smuggle it into the Canadian system, one of them being Ernest Hemingway, by the way. Well, actually, I heard that <laughs> some of the first copies of Ulysses were smuggled in from Canada through Windsor yes. to Detroit. That's correct. That's right. That's what I've heard. Yeah. And a great book, by the way, if you want to hear or read about that kind of details, is Kevin Birmingham's book, 
Ulysses, the most dangerous book, which he makes the case of how it was published, the people that published it, and note that most of the people that helped him really were, who were they? They were women. Almost all of these people were women. They right. published it in the little uh, review. I heard in Anderson. I can't remember the, all, the, all of the people. I should have boned up on that one. But the fact is, they were women. Yeah. There were the women that, pay, that, that supplied the money. There was Sylvia Beach that gave him backing. There was almost all of the people were women. And in 1918, 19, when he was serializing it, 1920, 21, 22, Harriet Shaw Weaver. There's the name, which people don't remember, yeah. but don't forget, without her, it probably wouldn't exist, this book, because she sent money, she had a fair amount of money, her, her fairly well-to-do English family thought it was shocking, but she kept sending money to Mr. Joyce. So she was really, really critical to having it done. Yeah. And then the Woolsey's decision in 1932 that it was not pornographic really opened the floodgates. At that point, everybody started to suddenly publish it. Random English, did, I know. the British wouldn't do it, the Irish certainly wouldn't do it, they were almost the last ones to ever even publish it. And it was deemed to be literary, the, the judge did. And I think it was, when you read his, his decision, it's pretty smart guy this guy was and he certainly i think gave this an enormous boost certainly for publishing so it's, after all of this then some people in dublin decided what yeah there was a bunch of and i can't remember all their names but there's a, if you if you look up the bloomsday 1954 you will find there's a series of people all much all of them who knew joyce personally uh, don't forget, Joyce died in 1941. So he would, there would have been people that were still there and knew about him. They decided, yeah, what the hell, let's have a little party. It's, it, so in June, that's when they decided, we'll use June, not the date of its publication, February. Eh, it's a pretty lousy weather and all that. We'll use June the 16th, and we'll run around Dublin and pretend we're sort of doing little things from... Ulysses, which they did. Apparently it wasn't drunk enough. It, it fell apart in the sense that in the end it became very rowdy and they were half cut and drunk all the time. They went from pub to pub to pub yeah. in Dublin. So by the time they got four or five hours, you know... Uh, they forgot about Joyce. I think they forgot about <laughs> Joyce and, and the word Guinness became... Anyway, and then I don't know. I don't know the exact history. I, all I know is that now I went and saw the one in 2008. I was yeah. in Dublin and went to it, and it was, you know, that's what I think part of the ideas that we're using now started to form about what you could do with it. And it was already four days. And now it's six days from the 11th to the 16th in Dublin. And of course, what do they have the advantage of being in Dublin? Yeah. <laughs> you can trace the, 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 the whole novel's way that these guys wandered around. You can go to the Martello Tower, which is where it opens in, in the very first chapter. You can go through the streets of, of Dublin, many of which they have changed, obviously. But still, the Ormond Hotel and all those kinds, Davy Burns Pub, they're all there. You can do these tours. So there's dozens of these tours. And they have a whole huge support. And it's a very big tourist attraction. If you're in Dublin in June of any year and you're around the area, it's, it's certainly worth putting some time in to see. You can go to 
all kinds of stuff. There's brunches and there's eatery things. There's everything, everything from theater to music to readings of the novel, the, the whole thing. And sort of well, that's how we started to think of it as something you could do here as well. Because before you came on the scene, there wasn't one. Is that right? Well, what happened before, and I found this out a little later, was that they, that day, June the 16th, a, a couple of people in the Irish community here did do some things at one of the pubs. I, I think it might have been Hurley's. It's a pub on Bishop. Yeah, or one the street over or whatever. At any rate, Hurley's pub, they did a thing, a one-day thing with some readings, you know, a little meal maybe, uh, drinks and stuff like that. And maybe they did a little uh, short uh, musical thing. And a guy named Gus O'Gorman, who was there at the time was sort of very interested in keeping this alive so when we came along good old Gus was very happy to see it being expanded a bit more and when did you come along oh 19 well at all this Saturday in Montreal because crazy me who never have it I don't have a degree in literature I have a degree in science in biology and genetics and stuff like that but I started reading the book in 1964 should I admit that? Why not? Who cares anymore? <laughs> in, in your cradle. <laughs> in my cradle, not quite, but still. Uh, and I always was intrigued by it, so I started reading it, and I kept reading it and rereading it over the next 25, 35 years. And I always was very intrigued, because every time you go into it and look into it, even if you open it randomly and, and you know it, you get something more out of it every single time. Which is exactly what Joyce said. He wanted to keep the scholars yes. busy for, uh, what, eternity or a hundred years or whatever. But there's so many different layers. That's right. There's so many yeah. different layers. And, and when you get to Finnegan's Wake, by the way, the layers are so deep, deep oh, yeah. and so difficult to, yeah. that it's almost nuts. I'm, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, the fact is then in, 19, in 2011, I decided being part of the McGill community for lifelong learning as it's called which is basically groups of people that get together and there's about 800 actually right now it's quite a big and they do 30 to 40 different study groups in three different terms across the year and these study groups are moderated they call them instead of teaching directly they're not teaching no. in a classroom with a chalk and all that stuff you have seniors mostly seniors i would say numbers of 20 24 maybe 20-something numbers in the groups and on various topics, anything from science and society, from the latest things happening in the Middle East, to literature, to music, and I decided, what the hell, let's see if we can do one on the book, Ulysses. They're only 10 weeks long, and it's only two hours a week, so I was thinking, you know, it's a bit of a chance. 20 hours is not very much time no. to study a book that's six, I don't know, 700 pages or more. Yeah. And, but, well, there were 16 or 17 people showed up to the group. Most of them stayed. We went through the thing. We obviously couldn't do every detail, but there was a sensing. By the time that you, you did that for 10 weeks, 20 hours, you got a sense of the book. And near the end, it was a question of whether we could do a Bloomsday here. It was brought up. And we thought, you know, maybe we could. And I was on the council of the McGill community at the time. And I thought, you know, they have this problem because they have a grant that was granted to them. And they don't seem to know what to do with it. Well, guess <laughs> what? We had an idea what to do with it. And so we went to the, to the council 
uh, which is basically uh, the overseer of the whole thing, and they granted us money. And so in 2012, we started our first one, three days packed with everything in it, including, of course, the traditional final day, which is always the 16th. And on that day, you, we did the readings and various things that are related to the book itself. The one of them always being, we finish it by good old Molly doing her final word in Penelope, and we do a section on her, on, on the soliloquy. So uh, you, you typically have a, someone who reads it. Yes, oh yeah. yeah. We have someone who reads it, and she did it again this year again. This time we decided to add a bit of music, because if anybody knows anything at all about Joyce, he's filled with music, his literature, there are songs mentioned. He himself was a great tenor. He knew a lot about music. He gives throughout Penelope, the last chapter, not only that, it's the whole book, but specifically also in that one, there are mentions of songs and all. So we had someone who's a, a Spanish-speaking person and a pianist and a singer. She also, instead of just listening only to Molly, there'd be little pauses and she'd play one of the pieces that Molly was thinking about. Isn't that great? In yeah. the actual uh, soliloquy. And so eh, I think it turned out very well. And the place was, I mean, it was almost standing room only. So we've grown. That was where? That was, that the... was at also the Westmount Library, which is a key place. In fact, the, the key places are the libraries. We have three libraries that we support us and that we use. The Jewish Public Library, the Westmount Library, and the Atwater Library. And they all have been very, very helpful in us. And so it all started in 2012. And now, or at least I heard, it's the second largest celebration in the world. Well, it's certainly the largest in this country. And people say in the world, it, maybe it is. It's certainly, it's now we've got it to 12, 13, 14, five days. And we do a number of different things. Yeah. See, it's not just about only Ulysses and reading from Joyce. It's about Irish literature. It's about Irish singing, Irish music. We did a, this time we did a small chamber opera called Riders to the Sea. John Millington Singh, who was a great Irish playwright and poet and everything else, he wrote this in around 1902, 3, 4, and it's a, set in the Aran Islands. And then Ralph Vaughan Williams, the great Welsh slash English composer, wrote music for it. And it's got a cast, and this, we put that one on. It's about an hour. It's not a long opera, but it's it brings something which you very, very seldom have done in, yes. in most cities. It's either too expensive to do it, or there's a lot of interest, or whatever. And the other neat thing about Montreal is that it's got a very large Irish diaspora group. I would say, and it's a quote I've used in literature, that about 40% of Quebecois, Quebecers, have Irish ancestry somewhere, partly because of the whole Irish famine of 1846-47 or 48, when they came over in these horrible, what they called coffin ships, ended up in this island in the middle of the St. Lawrence, up from Quebec City called Grosse Isle, were sort of allowed ashore, were taken care of, and many of them just died away. They just died of typhus and all kinds of horrible diseases, and they ended up being orphans, many of these kids, mm. taken in by French-Canadian families in Quebec City, in Montreal, and all over the country. They ended up in 
Montreal, they ended up in Kingston, they ended up in Toronto, they're all over the country. And in Montreal, there's a lot of these people. Some of them are descended from these people 150 years ago. So, you know, there's a lot of Irish. And that is one of the reasons that we get support from the Irish community. You get the support from the Irish embassy, right? Yes, definitely. The Irish embassy in Ottawa has been extremely good at helping we have the Irish Embassy, and I've gotten to know the ambassadors. And one of the great ones, who's now retired and back in, in, in Ireland, is Ray Bassett. He was very supportive of us, and supportive not only in going and actually coming to the city for certain events. Like, we'd almost always have a big talk at the Jewish Public Library, and he would come to it, and you'd have 100, 150 people at this talk. And yet, you have to have some of that. Without it, maybe you just don't get it done. <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say, I mean, if you look at the, the sort of building blocks, number one, you, you were able to get funding from McGill at the very beginning. At the beginning, yes. But you've also been able to cultivate your connections with right. the well, government of Ireland. And, and Canadian also, government. That's Can another big one. Now. Okay. Very big one. So that, and also, uh, we haven't mentioned them yet, but the School of Irish Studies at Concordia. Exactly. What happened, well, it, a little bit of more history is that because we were at McGill, McGill agreed to be the, uh, I don't know, the coordinator, the, the leader, the group that would be the administrator. That's even more important, the administrator. Well, you know what? After two and a half, almost three years of them administering or universities are wonderful places, but they're not meant to run a festival like this. And we had started having more and more problems and delays. They weren't paying people. I mean, when you're doing a gig, frankly, you must, you have to pay these people yeah. when it's over. You give them a check. Thank you very much. You don't give them three months and send them the thing through their office of, of payment office, yeah. which is what was happening. So we decided three, two years after we started of 1450, I think it was like 2015, we would no longer associate ourselves with McGill. Just because he was giving you a bad name, you well, weren't paying your bills, that, right? Yeah, well, not that, we ultimately got that a little yeah. bit straightened out, but what we realized is that we needed more freedom to do the way the things we had. Not yeah. a committee where you sat there with a dean and all that. Sure. You don't need that. So we formed a non-profit organization. More efficient and practical. Right. And therefore, it was only us, it was only our own board, it was only our own workers, and we got charitable status from the government. We got all of those kind of things put in place, bylaws, everything you have to do to make a nonprofit. And now, since then, five years later, it works because when you do that, then you can apply for grants. Mm -hmm. So the monetary thing about it is obviously very, very important. And we now have grants from the Irish community, from two or three other private groups, and the Irish government, and Canadian Heritage which is a big funding area for Canadian festivals, for Canadian arts. Uh, frankly, we wouldn't have survived without them. Yeah. And you have to keep ensuring yeah. that you keep money flowing in. One of our weaknesses that we haven't had enough individual donors to be part of the whole process. Spread it, it out a bit. Exactly. And I think that would help make it more coherent. But anyway, yeah. the fact is, now we have enough money to do this on a yearly basis. And we don't have to worry about the administration of a big university. And yeah. Concordia, which 
Unlike McGill, McCordy has a school of Irish studies. It's one of the best in the, certainly in this country. And the head of it is a guy named Dr. Um, Michael Keneally, and he's been extremely supportive. So we're using in-kind type of stuff from them. Yes, they give us a little bit of money, but they give us facilities, they give us people that are students that yeah. can give some of these sessions, these academic sessions. I was going to say, yeah, the, the, you know, what universities, it sounds like what they're best at is uh, providing you with experts to talk to yes, people right. during, yep. during the week. That's right. They provide you with that. And one of the things we decided right off the bat, very first, the first one was that we would have a series of academic base. It's not just all fun and games and running around drinking Guinness at the pub. That's part of it. That's part of it. That's We don't want to stop I, I showed up for that part. That's right. <laughs> and, and in fact, it's really getting quite popular, that. A lot of people like that. You get a few of these little readings. You get someone doing the storytelling. You get the Irish music. You get a nice little meal. You it's get your pub. It's, 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 it's a, a great little evening. Yeah, I think those kind of evenings are useful, but the fact is that we always wanted at least one day to be a day where we gave sessions, hopefully not only from professors, actually what is happening is becoming less and less from professors, and the students give talks or lectures, effectively they're academic in very many ways, about particular topics. This year's topic was music in mm. Joyce. And you know what? I think it's very helpful. It helps. Oh, it makes it enriches the whole experience. That's right. I would not want to lose that part of it because I think we have to basically say it's not just the fun and games. It's not just somebody reading out this stuff. And the readings, by the way, we've never treated them the same way other people have done. In Dublin, I saw some, and they're very, I don't know, they're cut and dried. We do them as actually performances. That's what you missed, the performance. When you read Calypso... You have someone reading or playing the role of Bloom, someone Molly, someone plays the cat even, because there's a cat in the... And they have their parts, and someone plays a narrator. So it's like a play. Oh, yeah, it's like a, it's like a radio play. Yeah. Obviously, you yeah. know, costuming or all that. No. But the fact is, like we did a section from, uh, from this year, we did one from Sirens, which is the one of the chapters that Joyce was trying to put words into the form of music and it's tricky it's very tricky back and forth and there's oh my god it's in a bar so there's 10 12 different kinds of people and if you select it properly you, there was five women and then we had an intro with two others using two different languages to introduce it because we always put at least one or maybe two readings in another language french obviously we always use french for one but this year we used some Spanish, and last year we did a Polish, because one of our members is from Poland. And she was amazing. We couldn't understand what she was saying, most people, yeah. but we had a sheet, and people could see what she was reading. And when, you, when it, was, it was a dialogue type thing, and you were thinking, yeah, it sounds like it's some dialogue. You don't know exactly the words, but it's read in such a way that it's got that back and forth and that sort of rhythm mm. that you would get. So we've done that. We we have a few languages we've got to get into more. Cause, and one of the guys, by the way, three years ago, we ran into is Yu Wei 
He's a Mandarin-speaking yes. man. Very well known in China, right? And he's it got an extremely big audience. in. Ch Can you believe it? In yeah. China. Yeah. He wrote a book, obviously in Mandarin. It's called The Shenzheners. Shenzhen, S-H-E-Z-E-N, is a big, big, huge city. Very close to uh, Hong Kong on the mainland of China. And it's written like the Dubliners. He credits Joyce, doesn't That's he? That's right, and he credits Joyce because he read him early on, and obviously he must have learned, uh, unless it was translated into Chinese, which is possible, by the way. Well, the books have all been translated. This is another, we're moving into another topic, but that book, Ulysses, has been translated into probably 40 or 50 different languages. Well, which sort of ensures that it's going to live around the world. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I was amazed when I was in 2008. We were in Dublin. They had a number of people reading in different languages. There was someone from, uh, there was Croatian, there was French, there was Italian, there was German, there was Swedish. You can read this book in your own language because it's been translated. Well, one of them is Mandarin. And yeah. what's really amazing is that they actually translated Finnegan's Wake oh my goodness. into Mandarin. <laughs> and I, and my question was... That's a nightmare. My, my question was, isn't it almost that way now? <laughs> That's right. And it's supposed to be English. <laughs> anyway, sorry. What you've just described is a really useful roadmap for mm, organizations around the world to follow. So how do they get a hold of you? Or first of all, are you willing to share your secrets? Oh, oh yeah. So Definitely. what's the easiest way for them to get a hold of you? Just email me. Just go to our website. What's the website? It's, it's bloomsdaymontreal, all one word, dot com. That's it. That's the way. Or simply bloomsdaymontreal at gmail.com. Okay, so final question then. What have you personally experienced as a result of founding and administering this program? Well, I, I, when we first started, I thought it was sort of like a lark, you know. Okay, we just by lucked out. Somebody gave the university, McGill University a few thousand bucks. Eh, they want us to use it. Okay, we can do something. Maybe some people will get involved. But ultimately, my, uh, what I love now more than anything is the fact that there are a lot of people that really like this stuff. There, there are a group, it's obviously not a huge group, but just one little example is that Ulysses session we gave for the guy, Demystifying Ulysses. Some people are afraid of this book, and I think after eight years or maybe more, people are becoming much less afraid of it and opening it up. And so I think we've increased the readership of not only that book, but also peripherally, the interest in Irish literature, mm -hmm. or literature in general. Yeah. If you really, really like this book, after you've read it, and you've started it for the first time, you know what? It shall pique your interest in lots of other complex texts, complex books, complex writing all over the world. There's a lot of it around, a lot of this stuff. And you know what? Not only that, those particular, that particular guy named James Joyce, but all of the other people, and the music, and all of that stuff. Yeah. It's just part of the whole thing. So we want to have some fun, but we also want to, you know, put a little bit of seriousness about the literary factor. And I think that's what Dublin is doing, too. The same thing. Well, I think you've really increased the level of enjoyment and understanding 
of this fantastic book and uh, all the credit to you. Well, thank you very much, sir. And I hope people keep coming to these kinds of things and that the word is spread, not only here, but everywhere. I mean, that's why you can read it in Croatia. That's why you can read it in Peru. You can read it in Sydney, Australia, etc. Thanks again. Thank you very much, sir. I'll be speaking to uh, Dave Shoreman in Montreal, just the south of Montreal, the south shore of Montreal. Dave is the founder and... CEO. CEO. Let's go with that. Oh, yeah, let's yeah, go I with that. That's, the that's, big, I'm the CEO. You should of, see my golden parachute when I get out of here. <laughs> of Bloomsday, Montreal. Thanks again. Thank you.